The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're still in John chapter 15. And the title of my message for you this evening is Following Jesus in a World That Doesn't. (laughs) This world doesn't follow Jesus. I'm not sure if you knew that or not. I was reminded of that this past week. I went to my kid's school, right over here at Maranatha, and uh, prior to the performance that the kids were putting on, they had us all stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance. You don't hear the Pledge of Allegiance that often anymore, and so we all stood and we said the Pledge of Allegiance, and I was struck by that, that one sentence in the pledge that says, one nation under God. Remember that one? I was like, huh. That, that kind of hits the ears funny. We're, we're hardly one nation. We're not the United States. We're more like the divided states. You know what I mean? And, and we're certainly not one nation under God. Perhaps there was a time when we could claim that, but, but no longer. Our country has drifted a long way from the Judeo-Christian ethics and, and principles that it was founded on. It's crazy to think that there was a time Really not that long ago when, um, you know, all of the, 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 the schools and institutions of higher learning were, were places where missionaries were being equipped and trained to be sent out to the world. There was a time when the main textbook in every classroom was the Word of God. This is how you learn to, to read and write is by reading the Word of God and, and so on and so forth. Now you're not even allowed to pray in school. <laughs> I like what Reagan said, as long as there's tests in school, kids will be praying in school. In the past, you know, being a Christian, it came with its perks. It could help you socially, politically. That's why all the presidents up to this point have claimed to be Christians. It could even help you professionally. Nowadays, if you put on your application that you're a born-again believer, if you tell your prospective person that's hiring you that you're a Christian, that's more likely to be a strike against you rather than to help you. You see, we've lost a lot of our cultural clout, our our cultural influence, but, but maybe that's not such a bad thing after all. Because at the end of the day, what it's done is it's weeded out all the people who were never really Jesus followers to begin with, so that now only those who truly love the Lord remain and are, are, are willing to claim the name of Jesus. So as we consider kind of this, this climate where there is a, a growing hostility that we're facing as believers, here's the question I want to consider together with you this evening. How do you follow Jesus in a world that doesn't? How do you follow Jesus in a world that's antagonistic and openly hostile to Christians? Well, let's read about that in verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Okay, so here's our first point in our outline this evening. We live in a hostile world. 
Now, when I talk about the world, I hope you understand what I mean by that. Sometimes when the Bible refers to the world, it's talking about the, the, the creation, the, the physical creation, the, the hills and the seas and the mountains and the trees and, and all of that. But, but other times, when the Bible talks about the world, it uses that word to describe the fallen, broken, godless system that pervades things like our education system, the entertainment industry, even the political arena. And all of these spheres have been pervaded by this anti-God movement and sentiment and value system and agenda. That's not to say that there aren't godly people working in each of those sectors and, and, and praise the Lord for all of the godly teachers and people in Hollywood and people in poly, uh, politics that, that serve the Lord and love the Lord. We need more and we pray for more. What I'm, I, I'm trying to share with you, though, is the fact remains that the priorities the agendas and the value systems of this world remain anti-God and anti-Christ. And so we're warned as Christians about the world system. John talked about it in 1 John 2.15. This is in your notes. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. He said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. So don't love the world. And Jesus is telling his disciples, the world is going to come against you. He didn't want them living under any false pretenses or illusions about what they should expect after he was gone. He wanted them to know, if the world hated me and I'm your Lord, then how do you think they're going to respond to you? So if your goal is to win friends and influence people, then let me just suggest that you not become a Jesus follower. Following him has never been the, the pathway to popularity. If you really follow Jesus in this life, then I can promise you that you will face opposition from the world. There's no way around it. And the reason for that is because you don't belong to the world. That's what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, if you belong to the world, then it would love you. But since I've chosen you out of this world, that's why the world hates you. And, and there's a sense in which you don't belong here. You need to understand that. And to increasing degrees, I think that every true child of God grows in the, the understanding or the realization that this world, it just doesn't fit them. And the closer you walk with Jesus, the more out of place you'll feel in this world. That's something that has been happening in my own heart for some time. The longer I've walked with the Lord, the more out of place I feel here. This, this world is just not my home. I'm going to date myself a little bit with my next reference. But you guys remember the movie E.T., Steven Spielberg classic? And there's the story of the alien that kind of gets left behind here. And, and, and the whole plot of the movie revolves around this character who's trying to phone home, E.T. phone home. And he wants desperately to get back to his own. He knew that he didn't belong here. And, and I think that's a picture of the heart of every true child of God throughout the ages. Uh, let me give you just one example. This is Abraham. And, and we can try to read this out loud. There's a lot of verses here, but let's go ahead and try it. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, 
like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham lived as a stranger and a foreigner for his whole life. That's us. We're strange, and we're strangers. <laughs> Some stranger than others, but we're all strangers. And our citizenship is in heaven. We serve heaven's king. We're governed by heaven's laws. We're driven by heaven's priorities. We seek to advance heaven's agendas. You see, this world, it's not our final destination. We're just passing through. It's kind of like a layover on your way to your final destination. When we were traveling to Israel, we, we flew from here and, and made our first stop in San Francisco before flying to Tel Aviv. And we were only in San Fran for a few hours. And it wasn't like this is our landing spot. Here we are in the San Francisco airport. No, no, no. It was just a layover. So we didn't get too comfortable. And that's what earth is like. It's a layover on the way to your final destination. It's just a stopping point. So if that's true, then why does Jesus leave us here? You ever thought about that? Why doesn't he just, the moment you get saved, poof, you disappear and you, you open your eyes and there you are in the presence of the angels and there you are in heaven surrounded by the glory of God's presence. Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, so-and-so just got saved. Poof, they disappear. Why does God leave us here? If we're headed for heaven, if that's our ultimate and final destination, here's why. Because God, in his sovereignty, has a plan for this world that hates him. And he has chosen to use people, that's us, as his primary means of accomplishing his mission on earth. There's this one scene where Jesus gathers his disciples in the midst of his ministry, and he sends them out to minister, and he says, okay, here's the deal. This is his pregame speech. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. <laughs> so be encouraged. <laughs> no, and he says, and be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. That's us. We're sheep being sent out to the wolves. Why? Not so that we can be gobbled up by the wolves, but because there are some wolves out there that God wants to turn into sheep, that he wants to transform their hearts. And so he's left us here to do that work. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he again gathers his disciples and he gives to them his final instructions. We know it as the Great Commission, where he commissions them to go to the ends of the earth to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, this, friends, is God's heart for his people. It's why you're still here. If it weren't for this plan, then you could go to heaven. But God has a plan for his people. He has a plan for this world, even the very world that hated him and now hates us. So that raises another issue. If we're in the world, how do we live in this world without being contaminated or stained by it? Let me put that to you another way. How are you supposed to live in the world without becoming part of the world? Do you understand the difference? 
Well, we're going to deal with this question in much greater depth when we get to chapter 17. But since Jesus talks about it here and talks about how we've been pulled out of the world, chosen out of it, I, I want to touch on it. See, historically, the church has responded to this dilemma or handled its relationship to the world in a couple of different ways. And I see both of them as being problematic. The first approach that Christians have used historically to is to remove themselves from this world and try to isolate from the world to avoid being contaminated by it. This is how we ended up throughout the ages with things like monasteries and convents. And, and, and it's even how we developed the, the Christian subculture where we create these little bubbles and in industries where it's all Christian. So that's one, that's one tactic. Let's isolate from the world so that we don't become part of it. The other group, they see that and they think, that's not the heart of the Father. He sent us into the world. And so instead of isolating from the world, they capitulate to the world. They pander to it and they try to embrace it in an attempt to win it. Those in the first camp, the isolators, they tend to be the culture warriors. To them, the world is an enemy that, that, and a threat that should be opposed and avoided at all costs. So their strategy with the world usually involves, you know, let's boycott all these industries. Let's remove ourselves from a, as much of culture as possible, as much of society as possible. And the only time we engage with the world is when we want to tell them how wicked and horrible it is. Those in the second camp, they tend to lean towards liberalism. You see, in their efforts not to offend anyone, and they, they want so desperately to make Jesus more appealing and more palatable. And so what they usually end up doing is compromising the gospel message along the way. They want to win the applause of the world. But the problem with that is you can't share the gospel without being offensive. Because in its very nature, it is offensive to tell someone that you are a sinner who stands in, de in, in deserving of God's wrath and judgment. You see, these churches that want to pander to the world, they preach about redemption, but never mention repentance. They talk about heaven, but never preach about hell. They talk about grace, but never mention sin. And what you end up with is a gospel message that is stripped of all its power and all its potency. You see, when the message you're preaching is so similar to the message that the world already embraces, that it's indistinguishable from it, then the world has no incentive to change their views or to join your cause. And so as a people, as individuals, and collectively as a church, we need to stand on the truth of what God says. And regardless of whether or not it's popular, we're going to preach the unvarnished, unaltered, unadulterated word of God. Amen. So where does that leave us? If isolating isn't the answer, and if capitulating isn't the answer, then what should we do? Let me give you what I think is the biblical response to how a Christian is to live in the world. We're not to isolate, we're not to capitulate, but we are, as God's people, to permeate. To permeate culture and society with the fragrance of heaven and the values of the kingdom. You see, this is what Jesus talked about. In Matthew chapter 13, in the kingdom parables, he compared to the kingdom of heaven to leaven that a woman kneads into the dough until it permeates the entire loaf. 
And that's what we do when we carry with us the ethos of heaven, the values of heaven, the light of heaven, the grace of heaven, the love of heaven. We are heaven's ambassadors. You know what an ambassador does? They, they represent the, the host nation that they're, they're coming from, and, and, and they speak on behalf of that place, and they advance the agendas of that place and the values of that place, and they represent that place, and that's what we're called to do. And this is very different than, than perhaps what we've heard and what's been modeled for us. We think we just got to hunker down and hold on tight and, and just not lose anybody, but just like, oh, we just got to get to heaven, just got to get to heaven. No, no, no. The church is not pictured as a defensive army that is just hunkered down and hidden in a bunker somewhere. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So we're an advancing army. We're storming the gates of hell. We're permeating this whole world with the fragrance of Christ. Our prayer is not, Lord, come and get me out of here. It's, Lord, let thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. We want to see heaven come down to earth. And the way we do that is by living out our faith, by being bold, like roaring lambs. If we're sheep, we are roaring sheep. Somebody say amen. Amen. So we're in the world. We're not of the world. We're not to isolate. We're not to capitulate, but we're here to permeate. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they'd not be guilty of sin. As it is, they've seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without re uh, reason. Listen, here's the insight. Revelation brings responsibility. Did you pick up on that? Jesus draws a connection in this section between revelation and responsibilities. He says, if I hadn't come, if I hadn't spoken, if I hadn't done the things that I did, then the people would still be without sin. But since I did come, they are now accountable for the revelation that they've received. Think about what that means. When Jesus left heaven and came to this earth and walked on this planet for 33 and a half years, he lived a singularly unique life. He did things no one had ever done before. When he opened his mouth, it was like heaven itself came pouring forth. His words healed sicknesses and drove out demons and controlled even the forces of nature themselves. The people of Jesus' generation were the recipients of the greatest revelation this world has ever seen. And that came with both a blessing and a responsibility. Yes, they were blessed to receive that, but then they were accountable to respond to it. And let me just tell you what was true for them is also true for every one of us. You remember what Uncle Ben said to Spider-Man? He said, with great power comes... Okay, you guys need to brush up on your superhero movies. With great power comes great responsibility. Come on, guys, Spider-Man. Well, this is, this is God's version of that. With great revelation comes even greater responsibility. You see, there's, there's a dangerous thing about coming to church every week. If this is part of your weekly rhythm and you come here every week, 
And you sit and you take in the word, but then you walk out those doors and you don't apply what you've heard. If you don't respond in faith to what God opens and reveals to you, then, then, then you're accountable for all of that. And so there's a great responsibility here. Here's how Moses put it in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Let's read this together out loud. The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them. But we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. Did you pick up on that? We're accountable forever for the things that God has revealed to us. You know, when people want to pick apart Christianity, oftentimes they'll say, well, how's God going to handle that person in the Amazon who's never heard the gospel? How could God, you know, God's not going to send them to hell or what's he going to do with them? And they always want to make it about this person in the Amazon jungle who's never been exposed to the gospel. And we can deal with that. But the bigger issue is what about you? Because you have received and you have heard the good news and you do know the gospel. And, and are you responding? in faith to the revelation that you have received. Jesus says there's a connection between those two things, and so we're all accountable. He goes on to say, when the advocate comes, verse 26, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So now Jesus switches gears. He talks about the Holy Spirit. And we wonder why. I mean, why is Jesus now suddenly talking about the Spirit again? Well, think about it like this. He's been talking about the world and how this world system is diametrically opposed to God, his rule, and his people. Well, if that's true, and we've been called out of the world but sent back into it, then what hope do we have of anybody ever responding in faith or becoming a believer? And the answer is we wouldn't have any hope at all if it weren't for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, what Jesus says here is, guys, the Holy Spirit's going to come alongside of you, and he's going to bring conviction of sin, and he's going to point people to me. Notice how Jesus here refers to the Spirit as the advocate. It's one of my favorite names for the Holy Spirit. He has so many titles that he goes for. He's the wonderful counselor. He's so many things, but here he's called the advocate. Another word for advocate is helper. The Greek word is parakletos. It means one who is called alongside of another, especially to help. So the Holy Spirit is our helper. And what a joy and relief it is to know that as you share, as you're sent out, Jesus says, you too must testify. But as you share, as I read the word, as I preach the gospel from this pulpit, I have like this holy boldness, this supernatural confidence, not because I'm some great orator or because I'm some excellent preacher or expositor of God's word. No, I'm confident because I know my words are being energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as the word is going out, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in the crowd and he's moving back and forth and up and down each and every aisle and he's bringing conviction of sin. He's pointing to the glory of Jesus. And that's the Holy Spirit's role. Praise the Lord. The focus of his ministry is always Jesus. Notice what Jesus says. He will testify of me. You want to know how you can tell if the Holy Spirit is in a place? 
in that place where Jesus is being lifted up, Jesus is being magnified, Jesus is being exalted, Jesus is being worshiped, Jesus is being enthroned, that is the place where the Holy Spirit is at work. Why? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't turn the spotlight on himself. He doesn't turn the attention on himself, but rather he always emphasizes and highlights and magnifies the Son. Just as the Son magnifies the Father, the Spirit magnifies the Son. It's like this. A while back, I was in Washington, D.C. I've got some family out there on my wife's side, and so we were visiting family, and we like to drive into the city at night sometimes and, and see the, the mall the, with all the monuments, and then you've got that you know, giant monolithic concrete structure, the spire, the Washington Monument, and it's brilliantly lit up at night. It was really quite a spectacle, something to see, especially if you're flying in at night. I forget which airport it is, but it's, it's really a beautiful thing to see there in D.C. But you know what? There are hundreds of thousands of dollars that have been invested in the lights that shine all the way to the top of this really beautiful monument. But I've never heard someone talk about, wow, those are some impressive lights, aren't they? Those are glorious lights. Those are amazing lights. No, people, we don't talk about the lights. We talk about the monument. Why? Because if the light is doing its job, then it's drawing your attention to the monument. Well, the same thing is true of the Spirit of God. His purpose is to illuminate the gospel and bring glory to Jesus. It is this ministry of the Spirit that led J.I. Packer to call the Spirit, uh, uh, he, to describe him as having a floodlight ministry, <laughs> because he quietly turns everyone's attention away from himself and thrusts it onto Jesus. Theologian Dale Burner even calls the Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity because he doesn't like attention on himself. And so we want to be a church that's filled with the Spirit. So we're going to make much of Jesus. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to be filled with the Spirit. We're going to move in the power of the Spirit. And we're going to lift high the name of Jesus. And we're going to testify. Praise the Lord. We're going to testify just as Jesus said. Now, we got to close with the last couple of verses here of chapter, or really the first couple of verses of chapter 16, because they're part of the same theme. There were, you know, Jesus, he didn't, he wasn't speaking in chapter and verse. And he goes, and that's the end of chapter 15, guys. Come back next week and we'll pick up where we left off. This is just one long discourse. The, the, the chapters and verses were added in later. And so I, I want to finish the thought. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 16, all this I have told you so that you'll not fall away. They'll put some of you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they're offering a service to God. They'll do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Notice how Jesus says he's telling them all of this. He's giving them a preview of the, the fiery trials that await them. He's, he's wading into kind of the fine print of what it means to be a disciple, and he's telling them what to expect so that they won't fall away. You know, historically, we know that everything Jesus predicted here ended up happening to the disciples. They were kicked out of the synagogues. They were killed by those who thought they were serving God. In fact, did you know that with the exception of Judas, who betrayed Jesus and then went out and hung himself, all the other disciples died as martyrs for the faith? 
They died for their testimony that Jesus was the Son of God. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. James was killed by the sword. Matthew was stabbed to death in Africa. Thomas died preaching the gospel in India. Uh, Another one of the disciples took the, the gospel all the way to Iraq and was killed for his faith there. A different James, the son of Alphaeus, was clubbed to death. John the Beloved, the author of this gospel, he was dipped in a vat of boiling oil. But he didn't die. (laughs) Can you imagine? They dip him in this vat of boiling oil. He's like, oh, this is kind of nice. Could you guys turn on the jets? It feels kind of good in here. And they're looking at him and they're like, why won't you die? And so they they get out of there. (laughs) And they end up shipping him off to the Isle of Patmos, this God-forsaken, berry outcrop of rocks in the middle of the sea. And, And there John spends the remainder of his days as a prisoner, and he receives a vision of what would come in the last days. He wrote it down for us. We know it as the book of Revelation. So he was the only other disciple who didn't die. But but you get the point. These guys all gave their lives just as Jesus said they would. It's going to cost you something. And so we need to talk for just a moment about the high cost, but even higher privilege of following Jesus. You see, there is still a significant cost to following Jesus in many parts of the world today. Did you guys know that from the inception of the church over the last 2,000 years, more than 70 million people have given their lives as martyrs for the faith? Think about that number, 70 million. More than half of those occurred in the 20th century. On we are seeing about 160,000 believers martyred for their faith each and every year. Think about that. That's 322 Christians who are killed for their faith each and every month. Another 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed every month. Another 772 forms of violence are reported. These are the ones that are reported, crimes against Christians. There are Christians in more than 60 countries right now who are facing persecution from their governments or neighbors because of their faith. Why am I sharing all of this with you? Because I want us to pray for them. Jesus is here talking about, if you follow me, there's going to be a cost. But all of these believers are are willing to pay the price. You know, I, I was struck by this thought that in the book of Acts, after Peter and John healed the lame man at the the gate that led into the temple, and they were led before the the same individuals who had crucified Jesus and condemned him, and they were eventually beaten and then set free. And it says the disciples left, and they, they praised God, and they thanked God that they were counted worthy to suffer with him. And I thought, Lord, I don't know, I don't know if I'm there. I don't know if I could be persecuted and, and or even physically assaulted and and then rejoice about that. We you know we've we've been blessed here in America. Throughout our history, you know, we've we've enjoyed privileges and freedoms, the freedom to worship as we see fit, but you see kind of the noose tightening a little bit. Can you feel it? 
and you, you feel the, the pressure mounting. You can feel the heat being turned up. And, and, and more and more, if you adhere to the morals and the values and the things that God's word says, there's more and more of a cost that's associated with following Jesus to where now you, you, know, you don't want to talk about th- there are only two genders. You know, that's what God's word says. Or that marriage exists between a man and a woman, one man, one wife for one lifetime, and that's what God's word says, and, and you, you don't want to put your foot out there, and you, you don't want to go wade into these troubling waters, because you know there, there's going to be some heat, there's going to be some pressure, there's going to be some people that come against you, and so in this day and in this age, I believe God is, is using that pressure to produce a diamond, to reveal the beauty and the worth of his majesty in the bride, the church, and so that persecution that you're feeling, even though for us it's just a smidge, it's nothing really, but it's, it's doing something in us, it's, it's preparing us, and, and I don't know about you, but I want to I wanna be bold in my witness, I want to be passionate with my praise, I want to be authentic with my loving, and so if God is shaking things up, then I want to hear the call, I want to wake up, I want to be the church, I want to go into this world and permeate it with the fragrance and the beauty of the the, the glory of heaven because the stakes are way too high. Eternity is way too long. God is way too good and he deserves our all. Somebody say amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.